You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan, and my voice is the only one you're going to be hearing in this intro segment, as my co-host Wade Bearden is on travel currently, but we still have a great episode for you. First up, I've got a special guest Ryan Holt on the show. He's going to help me review Bong Joon-ho's latest film, Parasite. And then in the second segment, you will be hearing Wade as he interviews author Brian Raftery about his new book on the films of 1999, Best Movie Year Ever. It's going to be a great show. Episode 223 is coming right up. on episode 223 of Seeing and Believing. As I just mentioned, Wade is on the road this week, which means that's time for me to put my long-planned schemes into action and replace him with someone else. I'm excited to welcome Ryan Holt back to the show. Uh, Ryan writes film criticism at the Caves of Altamira. You may all remember us from almost exactly one year ago to the day when he helped us review Netflix's release of the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. Ryan, I'm really glad that uh, you were able to come back on the show again. Um, It's always a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, it's good to have you on, and it's actually pretty fitting that you're supplanting Wade this week, because that kind of fits perfectly with the plot of the film we're reviewing in the segment today. After his environmentally friendly pro-giant pig fable, Okja, director Bong Joon-ho returns to the Hitchcockian side of things with his new film that's just hit its stateside wide release, Parasite. This is a film that won the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival. It tells the story of a family of four that's down on their luck and living in a slum when the son lucks into a job as the English tutor for the daughter of a fabulously wealthy family. Using manipulation and cunning, he soon uses his position to secure employment for everyone else in his family with the same household. His sister is an art therapist, his father is the family's driver, and his mother acts as the housekeeper. Complications soon arise, as they often do in these kinds of scheme-heavy films, and the family's plan soon goes off the rails in ways that they could not have foreseen. So, Ryan, obviously there's a lot of pretty um, obvious social commentary in this film uh, related specifically to class. Bong Joon-ho is not a director who's well-known for his subtlety. His trademark is actually kind of swinging for the fences with every single film that he makes. So that's not necessarily something that's unexpected when you go into a film by Bong Joon-ho. But I'm curious to know your thoughts about Parasite specifically. Does that go-for-broke kind of perspective that he brings to this film work for you or is it a little too over the top for it to work for you in this case it's an interesting question um especially in the case of this movie because this movie veered in a direction i i didn't expect as it develops so um as you note bong joon ho is is a director known for swinging for the fences going kind of all out crazy um but in a way, I, I feel like he he doesn't quite do that. There's kind of a, a momentum build throughout this movie where you get kind of um, it kind of establishes the baseline scenario and the metaphor kind of 
inherent in that and kind of all the thematic stuff. And then he kind of goes in a kind of crazy madcap black comedy, not where there's like real direct joke punchline setups, but just kind of like a very dark, darkly humored um, thriller of sorts where it just kind of veers wildly out of control. And there are various reveals that happen and things just kind of get really crazy. And then at a certain point, it kind of switches gears tonally. And it felt to me almost as though um, Bong Joon-ho was so invested in kind of the the message of this movie and the its, its central um, thematic thrust that he kind of didn't want to, to end it on the kind of comic frantic note that the the bulk of the film kind of pursues so at the at the last second it kind of pivots more towards um not exactly sober because it's still it's still crazy it's still kind of a wild uh wild final final uh clip there at the end but it it's 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 a little more serious and it's a little more direct and I kind of missed the lunacy of the previous <laughs> two thirds because because that's what I love most about Bong Joon Ho's movies and if you you know um, the the biggest hit that he probably had um, in kind of Western markets was was Snowpiercer which kind of memorable memorably kind of just like escalates and it it also at the very end kind of takes this serious turn but that serious turn is kind of also grounded in its own kind of escalating narrative lunacy and here the narrative construction is more a reinforcement of what we've seen before and um the reason i had some qualms about that is i feel like the base concept of the movie does a lot of the speaking for itself once you know the concept of the movie and once the various pieces have kind of like revealed themselves over the first few parts of the movie you kind of know what it's about. So taking the serious turn kind of just reinforces what was not, I don't want to say it's obvious because it's clever. What what Bong Joon-ho is doing here is clever, kind of reinforces that idea that's already kind of succinct. And it, instead of just kind of using it as a, a foundation to go even crazier, which is kind of what I wish he had done, but it's a very good movie. Um, and it's, it's, it is for most of its runtime for me just very impressively inventive um and i haven't seen a a, a dark comedy of this kind of <laughs> viciousness in 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 quite a bit of time yeah well that's that's you know what why i actually really enjoy buying a ticket to a bong film is that you'd never really there's nobody else, at least stateside, directing movies quite like his, which is, you know, part of the appeal. Although I kind of, I do kind of see what you're saying about the, the um, kind of the final turn that it makes in its in its last minutes, maybe gilding the lily a little bit. Um, but I, to up to that point, it's just. Uh, I don't know, great from from start to finish. And even that last turn, for me, I was just so invested in the film at that point that it didn't really give me too much pause. Um, I, I really just, the mid-film twist, I guess, that we're, we're not going to give away necessarily, but is sort of the moment where it goes from being kind of this fun little almost caper 
film where it's it's just this family slowly insinuating themselves into the lives of this upper crust clan and using their cunning to sort of just really get their tendrils into every area of their lives. That's really fun. But then there's a moment when a character discovers maybe, shall we say, a new dimension uh, to the the house in which this upper crust family lives that is just, uh, for me at least, it was just utterly enthralling. There's a, a shot that Bong, that Bong uses to uh, track us. It's a tracking shot to like follow a character along a certain path. And that's a camera movement that up to that point in the film, we haven't seen yet. So it's almost like this nauseous, like we, the world is flipping upside down for the audience at the same time as it's flipping upside down for the character. And that kind of just, like you said, utter lunacy, but also the extreme confidence that Bong has in that lunacy landing and working for the film is is just utterly galvanizing and really got me fully on board for everything that came next. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you 100. percent That that kind of pivot that the the movie makes is is really when the movie is at its best, both in that actual pivot and then it's it's uh, increasing increasingly um, mad aftermath. Um, it has it's it's such a wonderful blend of of just kind of like really really dark kind of almost vicious uncomfortable humor and and these just kind of his own talent for staging these really intricate um visual set pieces that are involving all these different people as kind of like his own little chess pieces as he's building (laughs) inside of this house which the house is is almost a character unto itself in this movie because most of the movie is set inside this house and you get to know the geography of the house very well um and he does a great job of establishing that and kind of using that um and also and also kind of using these characters as kind of distinct um personalities in all of these scenarios where they're kind of colliding against one another in very intense short bursts um to kind of build a lot of momentum into these set pieces and that's and that's it's really good it reminds me i don't i don't want to play you know like they're both korean directors and they're not exactly like and they ha- i think they have very different uh impulses but it, it reminds me a bit also of of kind of the the dark humor you can sometimes find in a, in a chan wook park movie um that would that sometimes mm-hmm. comes out in these sequences and uh, uh particularly in terms of, of of some of the comic violence that that shows up at at different points yeah it's it's uh i'm glad that you brought up the um the production design this the the house that so much of the film takes place in because the production design is just so great and there's especially this kind of doorway that leads from the kitchen down into the cellar and the way that bong working with uh his his cinematographer uh kyung po hong um shoots that opening is it's almost in it's almost like this pitch black rectangle into nothingness and you know characters go into it and emerge from it and it's almost like they're they're going into a black hole or something and because a lot of the 
craziness of the second half of the film revolves around uh, that that opening. It's the way the ways that Bong finds to play with that space is uh, both, like you said, darkly comic and a lot of fun, but also increasingly horrifying as things start to ramp up and both the class critique asserts itself and also the um, the danger that the characters find themselves in ramps up. That's maybe what sets it apart a little bit from uh, maybe some of Park Chan-wook's films is the... Uh, Bong, even though these central characters aren't they're they're anti-heroes. They're not they're not heroes. They're more like anti-heroes. But you do get to know them and feel for them and sympathize with them in a way that maybe some of the more over-the-top uh, Pak Chanuk films don't. And I really appreciated Bong doing that with with this film, kind of finding a way to marry the the lunacy with the the human in a way that. Uh, I don't know. I found really touching. It reminded me a little bit of his. I don't know if you have you seen his film Mother by any chance. I have not. It's it's one of it's on the list, but it well, is. It, I've not gotten there yet. Uh, I, I would so highly recommend it because it, it's kind of a bird of a feather with this film in that mm. it's kind of got the same sort of um, Hitchcock on drugs kind of quality that mm. some parts of this film has. Uh, there's even a, a sequence that's similar to the uh, the cat and mouse game that happens uh, about I don't know two thirds of the way through Parasite, where the cat doesn't know that the doesn't even know that it's hunting the mouse. So the the family's kind of like trying to hide all over this house from the uh, the rich family, and Bong finds ways to play with the space in lots of interesting ways. And he does something similar in Mother, but I bring it up because they're both so good at taking a character who you you really want to succeed, even if they're not necessarily good people. You want to see them succeed, and Bong takes that impulse on the part of the audience and just plays it like a fiddle. It's really it's really great. It is great, and yeah, the family here is definitely. Um, it it's they're situated as, as as underdogs from the start that you really want to see coming out on on top and and as you noted earlier on it what kind of helps is that the the first part of this movie while while it's kind of like there are still like dark touches to what what's going on it's mostly light and kind of just mostly amusing as this family kind of insinuates themselves into the household and and kind of replaces some of the people that have have been in that household kind of seamlessly to get themselves inside that part is all played very light so it's it's not it doesn't really take a turn towards the dark in like one fast turn um there's i mean the revelation definitely kicks things up but it it is this kind of like slow escalation where where you're you're already in it with these characters and then the desperation of their situation kind of goes hand in hand with the escalation of of their actions so you're still kind of connected to them as even as they're doing things that are um absolutely kind of horrifying at in order to to sustain <laughs> the status quo for them um it's it, it, what you say about um 
about how well he uses the basement. I'm, I'm, I also love how well he uses just the windows of the house at different points in, um, in, in the movie. He does a lot of nice things um, with his cinematographer with light in the house and, and light actually um, becomes a, a kind of symbolic value um, in different ways uh, through the movie. And I don't want to, you know, we're, we're dancing around narrative features here, but uh, it, it kind of circles back to that in the ending in a, in a, in a, in a very kind of touching way. And, and while I say, while I say, I don't think the climax is quite the great bombastic climax that I was quite hoping Bong was going to give us. I, I will say that I, I find the very kind of bittersweet conclusion, well, not bittersweet. It's just mostly bitter, bitter conclusion to this movie touching. And I did, I did find it affecting in that way. And um, I think, I, I think you're seeing, it's, it's almost surprising to me that audiences and critics alike have both seemed to respond to this movie as particularly in, in Western terms, as much as they have, it's, it feels like this wouldn't quite have been the movie everybody was talking about um, if it had come out say you know 10 years ago um but it yeah. feels like it feels like uh, uh enough has shifted in terms of what kind of broader cultural conversations are going on what people are thinking about that the the class issues in in this movie which are framed in a very distinctively uh korean context um are are still able to be you know recognized um and and kind of embraced by Western audiences. So I think you're seeing a lot of uh, emotional connection um, with this movie in a way that I I wouldn't have expected to see um, maybe you know ten years ago or less. Even yeah. even even like 2000 what 2012 what was that? That was Dark Knight Rises, which was playing off of like Occupy Wall Street. Like class consciousness uh-huh. has been in American cinema for a bit, but like at that point it still wasn't. I don't. I, I'm just I'm amazed that this movie is 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 you know doing as well as it is, um, and and it is being the the topic of conversation that it is. It really it really seems to be, as far as I, I'm aware, like one of the movies people are talking about this year, and probably likely to remain so. Yeah, it's a really good point that this does feel like a very 2019 movie, and. Th- thinking about how it might have played differently in a different year or or maybe a film like The Dark Knight Rises would have played in 2019 as opposed mm-hmm. to when it came out that's that's a really interesting thought experiment to to mull over let's talk about that that class critique though a little bit more though because mm-hmm. i am curious to know um we, yeah you know, obviously like you said we have to dance around some some narrative developments but I am curious to know uh, what you thought overall of the way that it approaches uh, its themes about uh, about uh, social class and and um, uh, the the ways that different classes can both um, work on each other and also uh, the way that just the overall fin- financial system or maybe not the financial system the society around these characters whether they're rich or they're not the way that system impels them to act in certain ways that you know maybe a a very nicely gift-wrapped political worldview wouldn't necessarily 
put them put them into. I think about there's this there's this one sequence where a bunch of characters are fighting over a video on a cell phone that's that's incriminating to some of the characters. So they're all fighting over it and they're trying to get to it. And Bong choreographs the action in such a way that they're literally climbing on each other's backs trying to get at this phone. And that I think is an example of a way that he's able to explore these themes in ways that don't neatly fit into, well, these guys are, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And they're kind of, it's, you know, one side against another, there's more complexity there. And I'm curious to know what you made of that, maybe where you found it falling short, since it, it sounds a little bit like it, there are parts of it that ended up not quite working for you in the end. Yeah, I think, well, I, I, I it's, it's a very, complicated dynamic as you point out and and there's kind of a basic ambiguity even in the title parasite because the initial way you're inclined to to read the title or at least i was when watching the movie is that the family is becoming a parasite on the household of the rich family but it there's actually this more complicated dynamic is the wealthy family or this broader society you know having a more parasitic relationship on this kind of underclass and is just kind of leeching their life away. Um, it's it's not subtle, and and that's and that's the truth. Bong is not a very subtle filmmaker, but I I kind of want to go back to kind of Snowpiercer, which had a lot of class commentary in it too. Um, so did Okja in its own way too. So you're you're kind of looking at the class is not a new theme for Bong, but he's usually complicated issues in 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 very interesting ways um snowpiercer has a kind of like class revolution but that that revolution is not you know like a blanket victory it is kind of a very complicated ugly event um and maybe and maybe breaking the system just means the system is broken is kind of is kind of where Snowpiercer lands on that. So that kind of ambiguity is also to a degree here in the sense that there isn't a clear hero or villain. Everybody is just kind of kind of myopically focused on on where they're at and what they need to do to get through the day. Even the even the wealthy family which is not necessarily portrayed in a flattering light at all. If anything they're they're kind of portrayed as as being real jerks. Mm-hmm. But but they are not they're not inhuman either and there are enough touches that bong inserts throughout this movie to make sure that they are not just um cartoon character archetypes that can be um, villainized they're they're human beings and when stuff happens to them it's not it's not without uh some sadness and so um and they and they're in their own way trapped by their their wealth they're kind of so detached from the rest of society um, in the way that wealth kind of tends to cocoon people uh, that they, they honestly can't begin to comprehend what life is looking like for, for the other people that are really struggling to, to get through it. So, so I don't, I don't see Bong villainizing them in, or even valorizing our protagonists who who end up being pretty monstrous and it's it's worth noting too that our protagonists have pretty complicated uh relationships with uh their the people they're they're essentially serving 
um, and and Bong finds some very interesting ways to dramatize that. Um, I, again, I don't want to spoil it, but I I know you you know what I'm getting at there. Yeah, yeah. There's um <clears throat> there and going back to the the title of the film, I I think and I haven't read Marx extensively, but I I think that he, one way that Marxist thought refers to, you know, the capitalist over classes is as a parasite on the workers, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the, the laborers produce the value and the, the, the capitalists kind of leech that away. And so the capitalists are the parasites, but there's uh, ways in which Bong kind of gives the lie to that easy narrative. Like, you know, the, the, the heroic workers against the parasitic uh, bosses um, there's not really any solidarity in this film. It's sort of everybody's out for themselves. And that ends up in, in my view, Bong uses that as, as its own critique is that there's not really in, in this society, these characters are in, there's, there's no solidarity. There's no real way where everybody kind of is working towards the common good. There's only the individual good and what everyone else can do to get theirs. There's a scene between the the wealthy uh, uh, father and his wife, um, who are kind of in, engaging in in uh, intimate relations with each other um, during one scene. And the way that they go about it is sort of there, there's almost a bargaining aspect to her. Like she, she kind of says, well, I, you, you need to get me drugs. And he says, well, you need to get me this other thing that'll, that I, you know, is really going to turn me on. And that's sort of unbeknownst to them. They're being witnessed by somebody and just that simultaneously humanizes them. Like they aren't just, you know, the stereotype of the rich couple who are very cold to each other and don't have any feelings but at the same time, they there's something twisted about their relationship that isn't fully like uh, an open relationship between uh, a loving husband and wife should be. And there are those little flourishes that I think Bong does so well in this film. Yes, and I, I think it's 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 definitely a, a film more about just how how this, especially given the way the the movie resolves it it does it kind of puts a very fine point on this idea that it's this it's this quest for you know achievement and success and this kind of false ideal that ends up leading everybody down this kind of like delusional path in this in this whole entire class structure so everybody is kind of fighting to get ahead and and what it means in this sort of system fighting to get ahead generally means you're you're pushing somebody down under you yeah um i think if i i don't necessarily feel this super strongly but i would say i have seen people say this and i i would say this is true in some ways though this you can say though that in this sort of like everybody's ambiguous structure there, there is a sense that that Bong does avoid asking some of the more harder specific questions that could be asked about um, structural injustices. In the sense that it is, it is kind of, it's kind of uh, a very generalized look at, at class relationships 
and interactions that's kind of you know everybody has their own issues in this in this thing so it doesn't i've seen some people feel frustrated um that that it doesn't kind of delve more specifically into some more of the uh the politics of it now i don't think that's what um bong is particularly after here and i don't think he needs to be after that but i do think it's it's worth mentioning that this uh, as far as a class critique goes it's it's kind of a a more um generalized kind of like moral critique i would say as opposed to the kind of like incisive um political critique that that you could make about class structures um and 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 some of the more like specific imbalances that maybe could be rectified via you know societal change. There's not a ton explored here about that, and that probably also uh, you know has something to do with how well it's been received by audiences in the sense that there's not a lot of specific um, kind of like political triggers that would set audience members off. It's it's generalized in its view of class and the problems between class relationships enough that a lot of people can get behind it without having to, you know, dig into the more kind of thorny and divisive issues about class relationships and what that looks like in a modern world. Yeah, that's a fair observation to make. And that might be, I I think you might be right that that might be why some people respond so strongly to it. I think Myself, I, I do appreciate how its critique is more morally centered and individually centered rather than being uh, a particularly um, uh, politically defined uh, perspective. So that that works for me, and I think that it'll work for a lot of our listeners, uh, but it's it's fair to point that out that Bong isn't necessarily like coming out very strongly with a coherent political statement as much as just sort of examining the ways that people twist each other around each other, their, their fingers in order to get theirs. And I don't know, I think that's a worthy thing for the film to be exploring listeners. If you have seen parasite and responded to it strongly one way or the other, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, this film is going into wide release and it seems to be doing pretty well, Ryan. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it, uh, expand further and maybe even come into, uh, the Oscar conversation at some points, that sort of movie. Um, but if you do get a chance to see it, listeners, let us know what you think. You can always tweet us at C believe pod, C believe P O D, or you can send us an email at seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. In the second half of the show, we've got Wade's Review with author Brian Raftery.
song you just heard was Will Be Fine by the band The Surface of the Deep. So Wade will be back on the show next week. My Machiavellian schemes aren't enough to keep him away, especially when he lands interviews like the one you're about to hear. Even though Wade had some travel coming up, he did have time to sit down for a special interview that we both think you're all really going to like. There's a new book out about the great cinema year of 1999 that, on the basis of this interview, I'm looking forward to checking out myself, and Wade had the chance to sit down with the book's author, Brian Raftery, to talk about it. So, without further ado, take it away, Wade. Hello, listeners. Brian Raftery has written about film, television, music, and internet culture for such publications as Wired, GQ, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and New York Magazine. His book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, is currently available wherever books are sold. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about the conversation. Oh, thanks so much, Wade. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, so I, I have this problem. I I read... Uh, half of a book, and then I put it on my shelf, and then I have <laughs> I have five books that are half read, and I tell myself, hey, okay, you can't start another one until you finish these. <laughs> well, I got your book. I I said I was just gonna thumb through a couple of pages, and I ended up reading the entire thing because I really like this a lot. I just I couldn't put it down, and I said I just I want to talk to Brian about movies, especially 1999 movies. So this is a conversation I've really been looking forward to. Well, thanks. That's very nice of you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you got all the way through. I would not have blamed you if you had to give up halfway through. <laughs> if you made it up to the Blair Witch chapter in the summer of '99 and given up, that that would have been totally okay. But thank you for the kind words. Oh yeah, no, the, the Blair Witch chapter. Well, there's two. Um, there's, yeah, yeah. Though those are probably my favorite from the book. I just I've been oh, really? t- I've been telling people about. It. I said, hey, did you know how this film was made? <laughs> and and people were just kind of like, oh, wow, this crazy story. So I, I point them back to your book. Uh, so for our listeners, we're going to be talking about 1999 movies. And I'm going to I'm going to name a handful of films released in 1999. So we have The Matrix, Being John Malkovich, Fight Club, Eyes Wide Shut, The Sixth Sense, Rushmore, American Beauty, Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, and Magnolia. And that's only touching on a few of the year's monumental works. Uh, you t- basically make a case in your book that 90- 1999 wasn't just a good year for movies, but a cinematic renaissance. W- why do you think that's true? You know, it's it's there's a whole bunch of kind of reasons, but I think it's kind of the, the sort of main reasons are one is that the you had all these overlapping generations of filmmakers. So you had people like Stanley Kubrick making Eyes Wide Shut, um, you yeah. know, his first movie in, I think, 12, 15 years. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you had George Lucas making The Phantom Menace, which we can talk about later, which was a flawed, flawed movie, but he hadn't directed a film in decades. Yeah. Um, so you have obviously Martin Scorsese made a movie that year. So you had a very, you had that sort of old guard um, making these very big studio films, but you also had these filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh or David Fincher or Michael Mann, who'd been around for a good 10 years or so, um, getting to make some of the biggest movies of their career. Um, so that's another generation. And then you had all these filmmakers making their first movie that year. Um, you had, you know, Sofia Coppola making the Virgin Suicides. You had Spike Jones making being John Malkovich. You had mm-hmm. Brad Bird making the Iron Giant. So you had, and you had Malcolm Lee, you know, who directed Girls Trip a few years ago, making his first movie. You had a lot of, you just had a lot of new talent out there. And what happened was all these sort of movie makers entered this system that was absolutely desperate for big ideas. I think the studios had watched in the 90s the major studios had kind of watched in the 90s as the independent studios kind of swallowed up the culture in a way mm. uh i mean obviously the big studios could still make movies like heat or la confidential or clueless like really great seminal films but you know the real excitement was around people like um you know paul thomas anderson who made boogie nights it was around david o russell um who'd made a couple of indies at that point it was around it was around all these young filmmakers and so what happened in 99 is that the big studios decided to give those sort of younger filmmakers and un- from the indie world huge resources. I mean, you know, Magnolia is Paul Thomas Anderson. It's only his third film. And he got, you know, New Line Cinema to give him about $45 million, <laughs> a three-hour running time, final cut. And they gave him the biggest movie star in the world, Tom Cruise. And then he said, great, I'm getting Tom Cruise. I'm going to put him in an, R- uh, an R-rated movie where he plays like a really scuzzy relationship yeah. advisor. Yeah. So you had everyone was taking big risks because um you know sequels and stuff like that were starting to 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 sputter out so the big studios kind of had no choice but to really kind of push things forward yeah i want to talk about magnolia later because i think that's my favorite film from that year yeah i like magnolia a lot uh so i turned 12 in 1999 and sometimes i watch these movies today and it's a bit of a stretch to connect their themes with what was actually happening in 1999. I, like most people, I tend to view them through the lens of, quote-unquote, today. What was, the, mm. what was the moral and spiritual climate of 99, and, and how did the movies of 1999 speak to that specific environment? That's interesting. You know, I've been thinking a lot, you know, while I was researching the book, I was thinking a lot more about the 90s, because I was uh, not 12 <laughs> in 1999. <laughs> I, was, I was, what, 23 or 24? Okay. Um, and so, you know, and, and it was interesting because there's all this, there's a lot of nostalgia right now for the 90s mm-hmm. um, and a lot of fondness for it. And I get that because I was a teenager in the 90s. And of course, yes, like I loved watching Twin Peaks and listening to Nirvana. And it was that was pretty cool and going on AOL. But I, I really do think it was, you know, kind of a troubled decade in a lot of ways. But I also think that we didn't quite realize that what those troubles kind of meant. I mean, if you look at the nineties, if you, if you look at the span of the decade and what was going on in the end, you had, you know, you had the, the Clinton Lewinsky uh, impeachment, which yeah. was a real drain on the, I can tell you like the last years of the nineties, whatever that whole 14 month thing was just a drag. Mm-hmm. Um, you had, you had the terror of Columbine in 99. Um, you had, a, you know, you had the recession of the early nineties and you had the, the Gulf war, which was, had kind of been forgotten about, even though it was still obviously going to play a huge part in where we are now, even 20 years later, 20, 30 years later after that started. So I think it was kind of a troubled decade, but people were trying to figure out why it felt so troubled because as strange as things felt, 
the late 90s were also insanely prosperous. You know, you had the economy was really gunning ahead. You had the Internet had sort of really taken hold. And all of a sudden you had, you know, Jeff Bezos was was Time Magazine's man of the year in 1999 because suddenly everyone was like, oh, this is the new industrial revolution, you know, technology and, and selling things online and using the Internet. This is a new form of capitalism. So there was all this excitement kind of mixed with this strange sort of dread and i think also you know um i don't know how you felt as a 12 year old about y2k but you know we all joke about y2k now and this whole idea that these systems were going to melt down on new year's eve but it it was a pretty big fear and a pretty legitimate one i mean the, the reason why y2k didn't happen is partly because we all spent billions of dollars trying to prevent mm-hmm. it i mean it wasn't some fantasy thing so i think Having even that weird deadline hanging over everyone's head, um, I, I do think it was a slightly more troubled decade than we think nowadays. I think now we really just pull the highlights of it. Like, you know, people think of the 90s, they're like, you know, oh, Spice Girls and Friends. And it's like, that stuff all existed. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, you know, there was some real, that, that recession had been really brutal in the early 90s. You know, the, the presidential races were getting really nasty mm-hmm. and brutal by the late 90s. There's a lot of, um, sort of negative stuff in the air. And I think the movies of that year took a lot of that confusion and spun it out in a way that was that was sort of um, you know, trying to address the present but also really un- unknowingly probably predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even though I was 12, I do remember the feeling of fear uh, about Y2K and and what was going to happen. And then of course Columbine and yeah. just the idea of well, where are we ever safe? And that was definitely something that as I as I read your book and as you go through the history of these films from 1999, I can start to see, okay, I I understand why that w- would have resonated with these individuals, with the people watching them because of everything that was happening in the world. It also kind of brings to mind the idea of movies that aren't appreciated when they were released but eventually become classics and so every year i make a top 10 list with the podcast as a film critic and i'm always afraid there's always this fear that oh i'm not going to appreciate a movie that will eventually become a classic and my children will be like well you know why didn't you like this movie whenever whenever it came (laughs) out um you talk about fight club rushmore and the iron giant and some of those found a good critical reception all three of those really didn't do well at the box office what qualities do you think make an undervalued film later become a classic and is there some sort of way that we can look for those qualities today instead of waiting you know 10 20 years oh it's interesting i mean you know i i think it's different now because we had this we had this mechanism in the late 90s early aughts of home video right so and we had cable reruns and so we you know sort of pre social media pre internet culture now yeah. it's yeah. you know you saw a movie in the theater or you saw it 8 months later and i mean really it was like 8 months later at times so you know it's those movies that you mentioned you know like uh, like rushmore or uh, or fight club and there was also election and office space i mean all these movies yeah. just were not huge hits but i think you know they're they're pretty singular films i mean they're all about very different things but i think those movies especially i mean fight club you know fight club is a movie that ends with I don't want to give away the ending of Fight Club, but let's face it, it's, it's yeah, 20 years. It's 20 so, years old. <laughs> Fight Club ends with, whether it was real or imagined, this this idea of we're going to erase debt by blowing up the credit card companies at night, blowing up their headquarters. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's something 
president presidential candidates don't talk about it in those terms, but we we are talking about like obliterating debt, you know, mm-hmm. and credit card debt. So that movie certainly, I don't think in the ni- late '90s people were like, "Man, credit card debt's going to be the big problem. Let's make a movie about it." I think it just that film just kind of reached into these bigger ideas of of we need to reclaim some things from the corporations that own us. And I think all those other films you mentioned, you know, Office Space was badly marketed, but you know that movie is very much about sure '90s cubicle culture, but. You know, there's a famous scene in that movie where these coworkers go out and smash a fax machine that has been driving them crazy, <laughs> and then you know, 20 years later, that's just a, a, we're just we would just be smashing a Chromebook. I mean, it's like yeah. we still have. Yeah. The, what's so charming about Office Space is like it's a movie about how they're all overworked, but they go home and they're not working anymore. Whereas now it's like <laughs> 24 hours a day, and we're worse off than we were. And that movie is very much about how damaging that can be. So I think these films, very much in particular, even though. I, I mean, I, and I certainly think I wouldn't worry about making a top 10 list every year because, you know, honestly, you're going to feel differently about all those movies 10, 20 years later. Oh, and some, some movies really need several decades to reveal themselves. Sometimes you need to look back at 20 years and go, you know, why was why were we thinking about, you know, if you look at Fight Club and The Matrix and Office Space, like, what did it mean that we had three movies that year that were about guys who work in cubicles who, you know, basically blow up their workplace <laughs> to find their own <laughs> like. I don't think we were really connecting those dots back then, but now you can look back. And and I don't know how you get those traits today. I, I think, you know, I, there's th- there's going to be movies of 2019 that we're not going to fully really understand their significance until 2039, really. Mm-hmm. Um, though I think now there are certainly movies being made. Um, you know, I was thinking like about Jordan Peele's Us or about this movie Parasite, which is out now. It's like, yeah. it's striking. Those are two really interesting movies that are very specifically about class division and class divide and, and, and the capitalism. And I don't think you get movies that are quite as sort of um, on the nose in that way. I, and those movies are on the nose in a good way, I think. But, you know, there's certainly you can still find those kind of big messages. But I, I think we're going to look back in like 20 years and go, why did we love Lady Bird so much? What was it about 2017 that made Lady Bird such an important? You know, and we're not going to know until 2037 or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that's, and I think even now we'll be like, why would, why did, why was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know, a the biggest original movie of 2019? You know, what was going on in the culture that year? I, I don't know if we'll quite be able to figure it out until we have some more perspective on it. Yeah, and then too, I'm I'm fascinated with movies that people love now that we might not necessarily love later. Uh, mm. I know I know American Beauty had some. Uh, they had some people who did not like it, some critics who didn't like it. Um, but now it seems like 99% of the pieces written about American Beauty are negative. And I, I want to talk about that in a moment too, about Kevin Spacey and how that changes everything now. But real quick, I just just for the fun of it, is there a movie that was released recently uh, that received maybe little attention or maybe mixed attention uh, that you think will eventually become a classic? Oh, that I think will become a well. And I'm just kind of throwing it that, out there for you. <laughs> no, no, but that's you know, it, I, we I've already started. It's funny. I I don't know why I'm thinking of this. There's because one movie I've seen on a lot of people's like this was better than you thought list was Glass, the M Night Shyamalan movie. Okay, yeah, I liked which, it. I liked it. Well, I didn't I didn't love it, but I do think that we're going to look back at that movie and be like, this was kind of a response to the superhero genre. Like this was kind of like really the same way, you know, because Unbreakable was very much a superhero movie. But this feels like a response to this genre. So I wonder if that's a movie that's going to 
here's the thing. I did not love it, but I think in five years I'm going to look at it very differently. And I'm kind of interested to see whether I like it more, whether it was, but I do think that's a movie that people will sort of look back on and go, Oh, that was more interesting than maybe we gave it credit for. I don't know if it'll become a cult classic because I don't know. I don't know if anything really becomes a cult classic anymore. I think things kind of, there's a million little cults now. So it's kind of hard to tell when a movie truly becomes like a cult classic. It's much harder to gauge, I think. Um, but I do think there are certainly, you can look at some of these films that are coming out. You know, obviously people are still going to be watching Avengers in 20 years, I think. But I, I am curious as to what some of the smaller movies, you know, I think The Farewell might be a movie that people watch for many years, even yeah, though it's not right. a yeah, and it's just it's it's a very I think it's also a movie that once it gets on home video, whatever home video is now, um, I still call it home video. I don't know why. <laughs> but, you know, VHS. Yeah, I think I think a lot more people will discover that. I think it'll have word of mouth, and I think it's you know I think we'll, we'll look back at that movie in ten years and go, oh, that's 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 interesting. That had a bigger footprint and impact. Yeah. But it's also just possible to know. You know. Yeah, and I think I think M Night Shyamalan will make a resurgence in the decades to come. And what I mean by that is not just newer works by him, but some of his works that people did not care for, A Lady in the Water, those types of movies. I think people are going to look back at those and, and really enjoy them. I, I did have a chance because, um, you know, I got to think about this question beforehand. I think my answer would probably be Blade Runner 2049. And, you know, it made a big splash when it came out, but I actually think that that'll be a, a science fiction classic if that's the best way to phrase it in the future. Oh, I absolutely, you know, I was only thinking movies from this year. I think Blade Runner 2049 is like one of the best. I, I think it's actually along with Fury Road, mm-hmm. probably the best franchise movie of the franchise era. I mean, I I thought it was mind blowing and great. And I do think, I do think people will discover it. I, I was very disappointed when that movie, I, I don't root for movies to fail or succeed. I did feel when that movie did not do as well, I was really disappointed because I thought, Oh, this is like the big thoughtful, smart sci-fi movie that would have absolutely flipped me out when i was 15 and it, mm-hmm. it did flip me out I, I really do love it um but yeah i think that movie is going to endure you i already see people like posting occasional you know gifts or something from that or, or, or the roger deacon scenes i think that movie yeah. is i think you're right i think that is a movie that will build a cult and it's just so weird that it's based on a movie that built its own cult yeah you know decades earlier but oh i love i love blade runner 2049 i think that's the height of what you can do with a with a big budget and a big star and a big property in in the 2010s. Yeah, and you wrote a great uh, behind the scenes piece on that too. Uh, the, oh, thanks. The, uh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, I got to watch Harrison Ford run down a corridor for 40. <laughs> have more strength at like 73 that I have at 43 or whatever. <laughs> live, live in the dream. Uh, so I do, I do want to get to some of the controversial. Um, uh, changes since 1999. So 20 years since then, new information about some of the year's most influential producers, directors, and actors have changed the way we view a number of the films you write about in your book. And you mentioned this. So some of these uh, developments are negative. The scandals involving Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, for example. What others are kind of maybe more neutral. So M. Night Shyamalan's name has become synonymous with a third act twist. I mean, we basically are looking at all these movies differently because of what's happened in the last 20 years. The Matrix and Fight Club have been co-opted by some groups who stretch, to say the least, the vision of the original filmmakers. How much weight should we give to these new interpretations? And in other words, and this kind of goes to just film criticism in general, are these movies from 1999 open or closed boxes uh, when it comes to interpreting them? Oh, that's, I haven't thought about that term before. I, I mean, I would like to think that everything, not to be too lofty, but all of art is still open. Um, yeah. It's a question of, 
you know, when you're looking when you're looking at something that's ten years old or twenty years old or, or fifty years old, <clears throat> and I think about this now because I watch a lot of I've been watching a lot of forties movies, and and sometimes they get in their territory where you're like, oh boy, um, <laughs> and, yeah. It's it's sort of like, well, do you judge a movie based on how it looks now, based on its merits now? I mean, the one thing that's interesting about the writing this book and doing all these interviews is that I started reporting the book right as the Weinstein stuff was happening. And I Weinstein was supposed to be a bigger character in the book. I was actually trying to talk to him at one point because he had a terrible 1999. He, he, he really basically, Miramax completely screwed up and did not buy the, they did not get the Blair Witch Project. And that was the kind of movie Miramax kind of had made its name on. And, you know, they made one great movie that year, which is The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I think they, you know, I think at that point people were getting really sick of Harvey and all the Oscar stuff. But, mm. you know, it is it is a bummer when you're watching, like, She's All That and the Miramax logo comes up. You're like, ooh, you know. But <laughs> I don't know if it truly, I don't know if it informs it because I don't think people look at movies and go, oh, this is a Harvey Weinstein movie. Um, and even the Spacey thing is weird because... I would say that, you know, he's playing this skeevy guy. (laughs) And I think had he played the perfect suburban American dad in that movie, it'd be like, oh, this is weird now. I think American Beauty, which I did not, you mentioned earlier, you know, it gets beat up now. And I did not like it at the time. I'm always struck now by the stuff I thought was cartoonish about that movie. It's, it seems a little more (laughs) accurate now. I mean, it's a movie where Kevin Spacey plays a middle-aged scumbag and there's neo-Nazis living in the suburbs, which are things that <laughs> weird 20 years ago, but yeah. now you watch it like, oh, this feels a little more prescient. And also it's a movie where every the teenager, teenagers are constantly filming themselves, which is another weird element to that movie, huh. and kind of living their lives through a, 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 through a screen. So there's stuff in that movie that feels that makes it feel slightly not relevant to 2019, but at least you can understand some of the connected themes. But it, like, it's weird. It's weird when you look back on these movies. I'm sure people look at... The Matrix, and they just want to rewatch it and enjoy it. And then there's the red pill stuff, and they start thinking about the red pill stuff online, which can be really gross and, and, and frankly, pretty stupid. And I, yeah. I don't know. I, I can sort of, um, I, when I look at old movies, I'm trying to just sort of look at them from a variety of perspectives. I certainly kind of don't judge them against whatever the kind of aesthetic standards of 2019 are. And, and I don't think I judge them on the kind of ethics standards either, which I know some people do. Um, I do think things kind of exist in the time they're made. So, but I don't know, and I, and I don't know what these movies of 2019 are going to look like 20 years from now. I'm not sure how we'll feel about about some of these movies. Um, but certainly, the movies of 1999 were so thorny and aggressive and um, ambitious in what they were trying to do that, of course, they're going to seem, you know, kind of tangled up now. <laughs> they're going to yeah. they're going to be difficult to 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 fully understand or, or sign off on in some ways. Yeah, it is fascinating just kind of watch something like Fight Club um, mm-hmm. and the fans. Uh, and you mentioned how David Venture told his daughter not to hang out with someone whose favorite movie was Fight Club uh, in the book. Yeah. And it's just kind of funny to to think about that. So I, I do I have a few moments left. So I want to talk about sure. Magnolia just for a moment. Yeah. Um, you, you know how many people are still puzzled by Paul Thomas Anderson's multifaceted work. It's probably my favorite film from 1999. And, and part of that is because of the frogs. And I see that film ending in an almost transcendent way. What do you think about Magnolia's ending, and how does it fit into a strange year like 1999? Yeah, it came out in December. I mean, it came out at the very end of 1999, and it's you know, it's not a movie about the apocalypse. About <laughs> the apocalypse, it's not a movie with any sort of larger kind of ideas of of of, of, a, of a reckoning until these sort of frogs come down. And I think 
that scene, um, you know, it really, I remember people walking out of early screenings and they would come back to the office I was working in and be like, oh, this movie's got some great stuff, but boy, it's got this one scene. <laughs> and I think for some people it was the frogs and for some people it was, there's a scene in the movie where everyone breaks into the same song. I still feel like when I watch it, I admire the frogs. I, I love the singing together scene more. That never threw me. I absolutely understood, but it, I sort of got what it was, which is a movie, that's a movie about very disparate lost souls in a very specific part of California where it's very easy to feel isolated and it's about the shared connections between them. And I think in a hokey with a hokier filmmaker, that would have been a movie where they all get together at the end and hold hands and say, Hey, I see you. And instead in this way, they're, they're joined by this kind of <laughs> event and then a sing along. And I do love that for it. I don't think I love Magnolia as much as you do. I, I think, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson has talked about how he wish he'd made it shorter. And I do think, it has a few too many plot lines, but boy, the stuff that works in Magnolia is absolutely fantastic. The Tom Cruise interview scenes, if you edit them all together, is like one of the best. I think someone on YouTube has done that. It's like one of the best, mm. like 25 minutes sequences. You know, I Julianne Moore's monologue, which I think they did in an episode of Barry, which meant <laughs> happy. Um, you know, that movie has was not considered a hit, but it has endured in ways just because it's so ambitious. And who who gets to make these kind of movies? Who gets to make a movie like that and put it out in thousands of screens with a huge movie star? You know? Yeah. yeah. No, it, it definitely feels like something we don't see too often. And you know, yeah. just the idea too of of the apocalypse and Y two K. People are afraid of it. And Paul Thomas Anderson gives us an apocalypse style scene and says, "What if the apocalypse isn't about destroying?" Uh, us but creating something new and that brings all the characters mm. together and it, it kind of just the connect the biblical connection too for me um and what that might mean and so yeah magnolia is a film that i really like um this is a oh, question that, yeah. that that i wanted to ask you our final question uh i want to ask you ever since we set up this interview because i just i think it'd be kind of fun to think about it I'm, i am springing it on you again um is there another movie year in the past 20 years that you think just might rival 1999 in terms of influence and scope I think there are two years that I think are really important. One is I do think 2017 was a great year. I think it was Get Out, or was it 2016 or 2017? The year of Lady Bird, Get Out, and Phantom Thread uh, and Good Time, which I think was 2017, right? I'm trying to remember what year I moved here. Uh, Yeah, 2017. Yeah. Um, That was a great year. And that was just absolutely after several years of of not great years. And that movie, those movies were wonderful. I saw a lot of movies twice in the theater that year, which is very hard to do when you have young kids. but I also think 2007 has these three has a lot of great films. But I think, you know, for There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, and um, No Country for Old Men to all come out right before you know, these movies that are all about these dark aspects of American history and American culture and 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 the violence in America that fuels everything. For those movies to come out right before the economic crash, those movies feel certainly like they were trying to give you a heads up. Like I mean, I really you know for the, the fact that the economy crashed right after Daniel Day-Lewis plays the most vindictive, corrupt <laughs> capital in, in like 25 years. It just, I don't know if it means something, capital letters, but it means something lowercase. You know what I mean? That yeah. those, It's hard to think about that afterward. I think, and there's a lot of other great stuff in 2007 as well. I do think it, there was, it was kind of the, the, the last moment before, um, you know, the, the sort of franchises really, truly took over in yeah. 2008. No, I, I think, I think you're right. I, I have two years. One would be 2007. And I, I think Michael Clayton is a, is a good movie. I would replace it with a Zodiac from David Fincher. Oh yes. Yeah, sorry. That, Zodiac. Yeah. So yeah. those, those would be my three, uh, I think perfect films from that year. No country for old men. Uh, there will be blood in Zodiac and there's just so many good movies. Movies. And then I, yeah. I really do like uh, 2011. We've got The Tree of Life, 
uh, Moneyball, oh, yeah. uh, Separation, The Kid with a Bike, just a lot of really important year, film. yeah. Yeah, so it was a, it was a good year, yep. so. That was the year I had my first kids. That was the first year where I was like, I have not seen everything yet. And I think I finally caught up. But I definitely, that was the first year where I did not have that momentum of seeing movies in the theater every weekend for a while. So I probably lost the thread of that. But 2007 was very good. And, and 2017, I think, was also, that was Blade Runner too, right? So that that is a pretty, that's a pretty solid year. Yeah. Um, but those are all three of those are, are solid years, yeah. yeah I don't know where then, to stand, but. Uh, another uh, film from 2017 is David Lowry's A Ghost Story. I think that, oh, yeah. I think that one will probably pick up steam over the years too. Um, I really like that picture. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for talking. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I would encourage our listeners definitely to pick up your book. It's fantastic. And if our listeners kind of want to look more at your work, because you're writing kind of all over the place, where could they find that? Where's a good hub for that? Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I hate Twitter, so <laughs> I never want to point anyone towards yeah. Twitter. Don't spend more time on Twitter. I mean, I have, a, I mean, yeah. I just have BrianRaftry.com where I put up links to what I'm writing, but um. But thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. This was a really, this was a really fun chat. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Listeners, uh, I really enjoyed the chat as well. Make sure to pick up Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And then it's also going to make you want to go back and watch some films from 1999. We'll be back <laughs> in just a moment. More from Seeing and Believing. Great interview. And thanks again to Brian for coming on the show to talk about his book. We hope you all check it out. Uh, And that's all we have for you this week. For my weekly recommendation, I am going to suggest that you all bid Halloween a fond farewell with a little movie called Troll 2, which is in the running for worst movie ever made and is also an absolute blast to watch with friends and popcorn, and I mean lots and lots of popcorn. I'll be back next week, this time with Wade restored to his rightful hosting duties. Until then, though, I'm Kevin McLenathan, and this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.